Wednesday, we're feeding the homeless. If you guys want to come, we usually leave here like 12, 1230. So I don't think the girls are going this time though, huh? No girls this time. Kylie has a birthday party. But this Thursday is women's Bible study. Okay, 6 p.m. here at the house. And then this Saturday is the men's Bible study. 9 a.m. here at the house. The next youth night is coming up when the kids go back to school. Once we get off of summer break. So, and then email updates. If you sign up for them, try and send out an email once a week to let you know what's going on. What we have going. So, with that, that's all the announcements. Um, let's pray. Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this time to come together to learn more about you, about who you are, about your plans, your purpose for our lives. I'm thankful for the way you made each one of us, the way you guide us, the way you provide for us. I just ask you would meet us here. You know each of our hearts. You know what we're thinking. You know our thoughts and what we're going through. You would meet us right where we're at. You would come alongside us. You would guide us. You would direct us. Open our hearts to you. Open our ears to hear your words. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are going to be in Romans chapter 7. We're going to we finished off in chapter 6 last week. Paul taught us that we were power of sin has no more power over us because God has freed us from sin. The rulers of this world the evil of this world has no power over us, has no power at all. That they were defeated on the cross. Jesus defeated them all. And that that power of sin has no power, only the power that we give it. Um, so it sounds simple. The power of sin is dead. The evil in this world has no power. Life should be good. But it doesn't stop there. Um, and Paul is going to explain that to us here in chapter 7. As to why, why do we still struggle with sin? Why is there still sin in our lives? Um, and what can we do about it? So, lots of reading today. So, pray for my dyslexia. <laughs> I don't screw up the words. But, we'll start here in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 1. And today, will be the, the New Living Translation. So now... Dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her and her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the law of marriage no longer applies to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies... She is free from the law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us, 
and the law aroused the evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. So in the new way of living in the Spirit, when we receive Jesus, he sends us the Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, um, to direct us. We, we have the Spirit of God living in us, guiding us in righteousness and right living, pointing us to the, the things of God. That We went over this last time too, the baptism. That The baptism, we believe in the in adult baptism. And we believe that because we looked at what Jesus did. He got baptized as an adult, the full immersion, going down in the water, you're representing your old life being washed away and coming up new, new life, new life in Christ. And that's what he's saying here, that the power of sin is dead, that it died when Jesus died on the cross. The power of sin has no, no more power over us. Um, but yet we still have these temptations to sin. And why that is, um, he's going to explain that here in a, just a minute, that the, the power of the temptations to sin is because the enemy knows where to, where to get us and how to get us. But there is a somewhat of a legalistic approach, and that's not exactly what he's saying here, but I do want to touch on that. We'll look at Mark chapter 7 and see what does Jesus say about that. Mark chapter 7. So so God created how we were supposed to worship him and let us know. And then man kind of screws that up with religion. Man's religion is man's way of coming to God. And, and we put these rules and regulations in there and, and things that aren't necessarily from God. But then we put these rules and regulations and traditions above God. And that's what we get to see here in Mark chapter 7. So, Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 1. One day, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand-washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. For he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. And when he said, 
you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God. Honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, Sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. Then Jesus called to the crowd, Come and hear all Come in here, all of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. So here they've held on to their their traditions, their religion. And this hand washing isn't like what we're thinking, no, it's good to wash your hands before you go and eat. Absolutely it is. But that's not what they were talking about. I kind of view this more as you'll see this in some some churches. They do this little ceremony of, of just pouring some water over their, their hands and kind of patting themselves dry. And it's a, it's a tradition that they've come up with. And it's not really about getting rid of germs or anything like that. It's we've always done it this way, so you should do it this way. And that's what religion is. Religion is these traditions. And it separates us from God. And here they're in the presence of God and they're more worried about holding on to their traditions, holding on to their religious beliefs. And that's the man-made side. And that's not what God says. God is after our hearts. He wants our hearts. And they're worried about what they eat and what they do um, and all these other traditional things. And Jesus says it's, it's not what you put into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart. Because what comes out of your heart, what you speak is the abundance of your heart. You know? And we choose to, to put those things into our heart by the things we watch, by the, the people we spend time with, by um, what we deem is important. That's where our heart's desires are. And our hearts can either be for God and can be filled with the things of God, or our hearts can be for the world and filled with the things of this world. So, to get back to it, that's a little sidestep, but did seem like it it fits in line with along what Paul's talking about that that the the law is not the important thing it's our hearts do we have a heart for God remember Jesus said the the most important two commandments love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself and if you do those two things you've summed up all the law so it's about love, and we've learned over again that love is a choice. Love is not a feeling. We don't fall in and out of love with each other. We choose to love each other. We choose not to. And Jesus gave us that example of love on the cross. He chose willingly to go to the cross. At any point, he could have walked away from it. He could have called down his angels from heaven to rescue him, and he could have been set free from that suffering. But he willingly chose not to. He willingly chose to sacrifice himself for our sins. And that's the example that he sets for us. That's what love is. And that's what we, how we're to love others. We're to love others by willingly sacrificing ourselves. Um, Jesus said to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross, and to follow him. And that's what it's about. So we'll continue on here in Romans, uh, in chapter 7, verse 7. 
Well then, I'm suggesting that the law of God is well then. Here, let me start again. <laughs> well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was never the law. It was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life. And I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still, the law itself is holy, and its God's commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. And that's what we're going to expand on today. That the sin took advantage of those commands of God. That while we learned last week that sin has no power over us, the evil rulers of this world have no power over us, that they were defeated on the cross, that their power was stripped from them, that we're no longer slaves to sin. When we believe in Jesus, when we ask him into our lives, he frees us from all of that. But yet, then why are we still tempted? Why do we still sin? And Paul's explaining that here. Because now the enemy is using what God's command. God's commands are good, they're holy, they're right. And the enemy is using those against us. Saying, well, you're God's people, but I can separate you from God because I can tempt you. It has no power over us, only the power we give it. But still, the enemy knows the buttons to push for each of us. All these different temptations he throws at us. And then the ones that attract us, that's the one he continues to tempt us with over and over again. And that's what we kind of want to, I want to expand on the rest of our time today is looking at this. So we're going to look at two different areas of scripture. We're going to go back to Genesis in the beginning and look what, what God's command was and, and how did sin enter into that and how did the enemy specifically um, tempt Adam and Eve. And then we're going to look at Balaam who was Balaam and Balak, who, how God set something up for good, and then the enemy was able to twist it into something bad um, and to separate God from his people. So the first place we're going to go is Genesis chapter 2. We're going to go bounce through a few verses here. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15 through 17. And then we're going to jump over to Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. But we'll all be in the same area and just kind of go over how God set this up. So by this point, God's created earth and man um, and has placed man in the garden. Um, so we'll pick it up here in Genesis 2.15. So the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. 
But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So this is God's one and only command. So this is the one and only area that the enemy is going to tempt man on. Just like he does today. He finds the one area or the multiple, maybe it's a few areas that we're susceptible to. And that's where he tempts us with over and over again. And he comes to our lives. But we just have to remember, it has no power over us. Only the power that we give it. So Genesis 3, chapter 1. We'll see how does the enemy enter into this. So Genesis 3, 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, You must not eat of it You must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Well, for one, God didn't say if you even touch it. So she's added to the word of God. And that's kind of what we talked about just earlier with Jesus and the the Pharisees and the religious ceremony of washing hands. People added to the word of God. Well, God said this and I have to do this and then I'll be right with God. Well, no, that's not what God said. God said, don't eat it. He didn't say anything about touching it. So men's temptation, humankind's temptation, is to add to God's word of God. Well, God said this, so I'll do this and all these other things, and that'll make me right with God. Well, no, that's not how it works. God said exactly how he wants things done, and we can follow him. We don't need to add to it, and we definitely don't want to take away from it. So to continue on, verse 4, the serpent says, You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. So they've eaten the fruit. The enemy has come in. There's only one command, and that command is good. God says, don't eat of this tree. Don't eat of this tree. Up until this point, they have no knowledge of evil. They don't know what evil is. Evil hasn't entered into the world. Um, And the question comes up when we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Well, why did God put that tree there? Well, if that tree isn't there, if there is no choice, then there is no love. Because remember, love is a choice. So without the tree being in the garden, without humankind, without man being able to choose to love God or choose to disobey God, there is no love. So without the tree, there is no love. And what they do here is they they demonstrate that they don't truly love God with all their hearts because they're not following him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Well, here they're not loving God. They're not obeying his commands. And without this tree, there is no way for them to demonstrate their love. There's no way for them to show God their love. So the tree has to be there. There has to be a choice. And that choice, without a choice, there is no love. Otherwise, it's a bunch of robots. It's a bunch of mindless servants serving a God. 
And that's not what God wants. God wants our hearts. He's after our hearts. He wants a relationship with us. That's all he's after. That's his desire is to have a relationship with us, to have our hearts want to worship him, want to praise him, and want to know him more. So then we'll skip down to verse 13 and, and see what, what happens. So God has come and, and is looking for the man and woman and they go and hide themselves. They've sewn fig leaves on themselves because they've found that they were naked. Now that their eyes have been opened to the evil in the world. So then in verse 13, Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. So the serpent, the enemy, deceived her, tricked her into, No, no, you don't want to follow God. You don't want to listen to God. This is much better for you. There was only one command given at this time, and that's the, that's the command, that's the area that the enemy went after in their lives and deceived them, deceived them both. We read that Adam was with her. There is no, no, uh, no getting out of it for Adam. He was with her. They both ate. They were both deceived. They um, both chose to separate themselves from God, not to be obedient to God. So the other area of Scripture that we're going to learn about where God sets up something that's good and the enemy comes and attacks it. He uses God's laws, God's commands, which are good, and he twists them and perverts them, just like the enemy did here. The enemy twists and perverts. No, that's not really true what God said. You won't, this won't happen. This will be good for you. And she was convinced. She saw it. She ate of it. The enemy had tricked her. So the other area of scripture where we see this is in Numbers chapter 22. And I didn't put them all on the screen because it's a lot to, to read. But. So Numbers chapter 22. We'll start in verse 1. We'll go through a few chapters here. But this is the story of, of Balak and Balaam. At this point, though, the Israelites are... Moses is their leader, and they're, they're moving through the lands and conquering the people of those lands. Um, and this is what God set out for them. And God is guiding them and not doing it by their might and their power, but by God's might and his power. So we'll pick it up here in chapter 22, verse 1. Then the people of Israel traveled to the plains of Moab, and camped east of the Jordan River, across from Jericho. Balak, son of Zippor, the Moabite king, had seen everything the Israelites did to the Amorites. And when the people of Moab saw how many Israelites there were, they were terrified. The king of Moab said to the elders of Midian, This mob will devour everything in sight, like an ox devours grass in a field. So Balak, king of Moab, sent messengers to call Balaam, son of Beor, who was living in the native land of Pethor, near the Euphrates River. His message said, Look, a vast horde of people has arrived from Egypt. They cover the face of the earth and are threatening me. Please come and curse these people for me, 
because they are too powerful for me. Then perhaps I will be able to conquer them and drive them from the land. I know that blessings fall on anyone you bless and curses fall on people you curse. Balak's messengers, who were elders in Moab and Midian, sent out with money to pay Balaam to place a curse upon Israel. They went to Balaam and delivered Balak's message to him. Stay here overnight, Balaam said. In the morning, I will tell you whatever the Lord directs me to say. So the officials from Moab stayed with Balaam. That night, God came to Balaam and asked him, Who are these men visiting you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent me this message. Look, a vast horde of people has arrived in Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come and curse these people for me, and perhaps I will be able to stand up to them and drive them from the land. But God told Balaam, No, don't go, do not go with them. You are not to curse these people, for they have been blessed. The next morning, Balaam got up, told Balak's officials, Go on home, the Lord will not let me go with you. So the Lord's made it very clear to him not to go with them, not to curse them, to stay where he's at, that they will be blessed. So the Moabite officials returned to Balak and reported, Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak tried again. This time he sent a larger number of even more distinguished officials and those he sent than those he sent the first time. They went to Balaam and delivered this message to him. This is what Balak Son of Zippor says, Please don't let anything stop you from coming to help me. I will pay you very well and do whatever you tell me. Just come and curse these people for me. So at this point, Balaam has already spoke to God and he knows he's not to do this. God has told him to stay put. But now they've come with an even more distinguished officials. Oh, look how much more prestigious we are. And we're willing to pay you now. And now they've gotten Balaam's attention. He's willing to go a second time to God. And, well, God, do I really have to obey you? I know you already told me once, but do I really? So this is the enemy coming against Balaam and, and getting him where they know he's vulnerable. The enemy knows that he's going to be vulnerable when it comes to getting paid. And we'll see that. We're going to have to go to a few places in the Bible, but that's what I love about the Bible. The whole Bible from beginning to end. Here we're at the beginning of the Bible And we're going to go all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation to get this story to all tie together. So it all, God gave it all to us for the whole Bible, from cover to cover, to explain how he wants us to live. And we're to to use it all. No, No part of it are we to discredit. So anyways, back to the story. But Balaam responded to Balak's messengers, Even if Balak were to give me his palace filled with silver and gold, I would be powerless to do anything against the will of my God, of the Lord my God. But stay here one more night, and I will see if the Lord has anything else to say to me. That night, God came to Balaam and told him, Since these men have come for you, get up and go with them, but do not, but do only what I tell you to do. So this verse here, I want to jump over to to the New American Standard Bible, because it says it just a little bit different, and I think it's 
that's important as to why it says that. So verse 20 in the New American Standard. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise and go with them, but you shall do only the thing that I tell you. So if they come and call on him in the morning, he's to go with them. That's in, I think that's a key thing here. Because without that understanding, the next couple of verses seem like God has placed him in an impossible situation, which he is not. So back to verse 21 in the New Living Translation. So the next morning, Balaam got up, saddled his donkey, and started off with the Moabite officials. But God was angry with Balaam. God was angry that Balaam was going. So he sent an angel of the Lord to stand in the road and block his way. So why is God angry? Well, I believe it's because God said, if they come to you in the morning, well, I don't read that they came to him in the morning. So that was his God's sign. So Balaam's not to go, but Balaam's not really seeking after what God wants. Balaam's focused on this money now. And we'll get to see that here in the end. So the God sends the angel of the Lord to stand in the road and block his way. As Balaam and two servants were riding along, Balaam's donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. The donkey bolted off the road into a field, but Balaam beat it and turned it back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood at the place where the road narrowed between two, two vineyard walls. When the donkey saw the angel, it tried to squeeze by and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So Balaam beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved further down the road and stood in a place too narrow for the donkey to get by at all. This time, when the donkey saw the angel, it lay down under Balaam. In a fit of rage, Balaam beat the animal again with his staff. Then the Lord gave the donkey the ability to speak. What have I done to you that deserves your beating me three times? It asked Balaam. You have made me look like a fool, Balaam shouted. So now he's arguing with the donkey who's talking to him. <laughs> if I had a sword with me, I would kill you. But I am the same donkey you have ridden all your life, the donkey answered. I have never done any have I ever done anything like this before? No, Balaam admitted. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the roadway with a drawn sword in his hand. Balaam bowed his head and fell down on the ground before him. Why did you beat your donkey these three times? the angel of the Lord demanded. Look, I have come to block your way because you are stubbornly resisting me. Three times the donkey saw me and shied away. Otherwise, I would have certainly killed you by now and spared the donkey. Then Balaam confessed to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I didn't realize you were standing in the road to block my way. I will return home if you are against, I will return home if you are against my going. But the angel of the Lord told Balaam, Go with these men, but say only what I tell you to say. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. When King Balak heard that Balaam was on his way, he went out to meet him at a Moabite town on the Aaron River, at the farthest border of his land. 
Didn't I send you an urgent invitation? Why didn't you come right away? Balak asked Balaam. Didn't you believe me when I said I would reward you richly? Balaam replied, Look, now I have come, but I have no power to say whatever I want. I will speak only the message that God puts in my mouth. Then Balaam accompanied Balak to King to Kirith Hazareth, where the king sacrificed cattle and sheep. He sent portions of the meat to Balaam and the officials who were with him. The next morning, Balak took Balaam up to Baeth Bel. From there, he could see some of the people of Israel spread out below him. So he's there, he's with him, but he knows that he can only speak what God tells him to speak. So, but Balak still doesn't understand that, this king of Moab. He's still worried. Well, I want these people to go on, and I want you to curse them. And when you curse them, I've been told that, that your curses stand, that this, this is how I'm going to get out of this. And Balaam knows that he's only going to be able to say what God says, and God has already told him you can't curse these people. So he's put himself in this very awkward situation that he's got no way to win. He's going to do what God says, and it's going to make this Balak very mad at him. So we'll continue on. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build me seven altars here and prepare seven young bulls and seven rams for me to sacrifice. Balak followed his instructions, and the two of them sacrificed a young bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, Stand here by your burnt offerings. I will go see if the Lord will respond to me. Then I will tell you whatever he reveals to me. So Balaam went alone to the top of a bare hill, and God met him there. Balaam said to him, I have prepared seven altars and have sacrificed a young bull and ram on each altar. For the Lord gave Balaam a message for King Balak. Then he said, go back to Balak and give him my message. So Balaam returned, found the king standing beside his burnt offering with all the officials of Moab. This was the message Balaam delivered. Balak summoned me to come from Aram. The king of Moab brought me from eastern hills. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come and announce Israel's doom. But how can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I condemn those who the Lord has not condemned? I see them from the clifftops. I watch them from the hills. I see a people who lived by themselves, set apart from other nations. Who can count Jacob's descendants as numerous as dust? Who can even... I'm sorry, who can count even a fourth of Israel's people? Let me die like the righteous. Let my life end like theirs. Then King Balak demanded of Balaam, What have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies. Instead, you have blessed them. But Balaam replied, I will speak only the message that the Lord puts in my mouth. Then King Balak told him, Come with me to another place. There you will see another part of the nation of Israel, but not all of them. Curse at least this many. So Balak took Balaam to a plateau of Zephorim on the Pigsa Peak. 
He built seven altars there and offered a young bull and ram at each. Balaam said to the king, Stand here by your burnt offering while I go over there to meet the Lord. And the Lord met Balaam and gave him a message. Then he said, Go back to Balak and give him my message. So Balaam returned, found the king standing beside his burnt offering with all the officials of Moab. What did the Lord say? Balak asked eagerly. This is what the message Balaam delivered. Rise up, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not a man. He does not lie. He is not human. He does not change his mind. That's an important one. God never changes his mind. He has, has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? Listen, I received a command to bless. God has blessed and I cannot reverse it. No misfortune is in his plan for Jacob. No trouble is in store for Israel. For the Lord, their God, is with them. He has been proclaimed their king. God brought them out of Egypt. For them, he is as strong as a wild ox. No curse can touch Jacob. No magic has any power against Israel. For now, it will be said of Jacob, what wonders God has done for Israel. These people rise up like a lioness, like a majestic lion rousing itself. They refuse to rest until they have feasted on prey, drinking the blood they have slaughtered. Then Balak said to Balaam, fine, but if you won't curse them, at least don't bless them. But Balaam replied to Balak, didn't I tell you that I can do only what the Lord tells me? So Balak still doesn't get it. And Balaam's told him over and over again. And Balaam has placed himself in this impossible situation that he can't go against God. He knows that. And he can't please Balak. But he continues on. So then the king said to Balaam, Come, I will take you to one more place. Perhaps it will please God to let you curse them from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Mount Peor, overlooking the wasteland. Balaam again told Balak, Build me seven altars, prepare seven young bulls and seven rams for me to sacrifice. So Balak did as Balaam offered, as Balaam ordered and offered a young bull and ram at each altar. By now, Balaam realized that the Lord was determined to bless Israel. So God's determined to bless Israel. We just read God doesn't change his mind. So he did not resort to divination as before. Instead, he turned, looked out towards the wilderness where he saw the people of Israel camped tribe by tribe. Then the Spirit of God came upon him. And this is the message he delivered. This is the message of Balaam, son of Beor, the message of the man whose eyes see clearly, the message of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who bows down with eyes wide open. How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob! How lovely are your homes, O Israel! They spread before me like palm groves, like gardens by a riverside. They are all, they are like tall trees planted by the Lord, like cedars 
besides the water. Water will flow from their buckets. Their offspring will have all they need. Their king will be a great will be greater than Agag. Their kingdom will be exalted. God brought them out of Egypt for them. He is as strong as a wild ox. He devours all the nations that oppose him, breaking their bones into pieces, shooting them with arrows. Like a lion, Israel crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to arouse her. Blessed is everyone who blesses you, O Israel, and cursed is everyone who curses you, Israel. Now that last sentence there, that's important for today's times. Blessed is everyone who blesses Israel. The nations that bless Israel will be blessed, and the nations that curse Israel will be cursed. And that still stands today, and that's important. That's a side note from what we're talking about, though. So we'll finish up here. We're almost done with the story of Balak. But you can see where God's determined to do good. He's determined to bless Israel, that this is his will, and that he won't let, he won't let Balaam curse them. He won't, he won't change his mind. He won't relent from what he's determined to do. So, continuing on here, Numbers 24, verse 10. King Balak flew into a rage against Balaam. He angrily clapped his hands and shouted, I called you to curse my enemies. Instead, you have blessed them three times. Now, get out of here. Go back home. I promise to reward you richly but the Lord has kept you from your reward. Balaam told Balak, don't you remember what I told your messengers? I said, even if Balak were to give me his palace filled with silver and gold, I would be powerless to do anything against the will of the Lord. I told you what I could say. I told you that I could say only what the Lord says. Now I'm returning to my own people, but first, Let me tell you what the Israelites will do to your people in the future. So this is Balaam's final message to him. This is the message Balaam delivered. This message of Balaam, son of Beor, the message of a man whose eyes see clearly, the message of the one who hears the words of God, who has the knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who bows down with eyes wide open. I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him, but far in the distant future. A star will rise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. It will crush the foreheads of the Moabites of the Moab. It will crush the foreheads of Moab's people, cracking the skulls of the people of Sheth. Edom will be taken over, and Seir, its enemies, will be conquered. While Israel marches on in triumph. A true ruler will rise in Jacob, who will destroy the survivors of Ur. Then Balaam looked toward the people of Amalek and delivered this message. Amalek was the greatest of nations, but its destiny is destruction. Then he looked toward the Canaanites and delivered this message. Your home is secure, your nest is set on rocks, but the Canaanites will be destroyed when Assyria takes you captive. Balaam concludes this message by saying, Alas, who can survive unless God has willed it? Ships will come from the coast of Cyprus. They will oppress the Assyrians and afflict Eber. 
but they too will be utterly destroyed. Then Balaam and Balak return to their homes. So Balaam has prophesied of what's going to happen to the future kingdoms. And it's all going to come to pass. God doesn't change his mind. God blesses them. Now the interesting part here is you read how God is determined to bless. He doesn't change his mind, even though Balaam is trying to get paid. He's been tempted by this this lure of money, this wealth, this worldly possession, which tempts so many of us. The world that we live in looks very pleasurable for a season. That if I only did this, I'd be happy. That if I only had this money, I'd be happy. If I only lived in this house, I'd be happy. If I only had this job, I'd be happy. If I only had this success in my life, I'd be happy. But it's not true. None of it brings true happiness. The only thing that brings true happiness and joy is our trust and our faith and our belief in Jesus Christ. That's it. He's the only one that can bring us joy, that can bring us peace. The peace that he offers is different from the peace of the world. And the the hope that he offers is different from the hope of the world. It's a guarantee. It's a guarantee promise that we'll be with him. So we read all this and you're thinking, well, what does this have to do with, with the enemy twisting God's word? Well, we'll get into that. So we'll read here a few verses in chapter 25. And then we're going to head to... We're going to head to Second Peter. So... We just read through all these blessings, this battle between Balaam and Balak, and Balaam doing exactly what God says, and Balak getting very upset. Balaam blessing the nation of Israel three times when God, when Balak wants God to curse the nation of Israel. Doesn't happen. So it's very interesting that the very next chapter, the very next verse we read, 25, starts off like this. While the Israelites were camped at Acacia Grove, Some of the men defiled themselves by having sexual relations with the local Moabite women. These women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods, so the Israelites feasted with them and worshipped the gods of Moab. In this way, Israel joined in the worship of Beel Peor, causing the Lord's anger to blaze against his people. The Lord issued the following command to Moses, Seize all of the ringleaders and execute them before the Lord in broad daylight. So his fierce anger will turn away from the people of Israel. So Moses ordered Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death the men under your authority who have joined in worship of Beel Peor. Just then, one of the Israelite men brought a Mennonite woman into his tent right before the eyes of Moses and all the people. As everyone was weeping at the entrance of the tabernacle, when Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the grandson of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he jumped up, left the assembly, took a spear, and rushed after the man into his tent. Phinehas thrust the spear all the way through the man's body and into the woman's stomach. So the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but not before 24,000 people had died. So, we read that God is blessing the nation of Israel, blessing the nation, blessing the nation of Israel, and then the very next verse, the very next chapter, we read that Israel has is, is fallen out of God's favor. And how did they do it? They, they, did it, they fell out of God's favor because they got caught up 
in sexual immorality with the Moabite women, and the Moabite women convinced the men to come worship this false god with them. So how did that come to play, and how is that connected with what we're talking about? And for that, we'll pick it up in Second Peter, and we'll see what, how this transpired and how this came to be, and the significance of this. So lots of reading, but you do have to admit, admit that a talking donkey is pretty interesting, right? You thought Shrek was the first talking donkey, huh? No, God, God invented that. <laughs> they did, so, so here in Second Peter chapter two, starting in verse fifteen. Second Peter 2.15 They have wandered off the right road and followed the footsteps of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved to earn money by doing wrong. But Balaam was stopped from his mad course when his donkey rebuked him with a human voice. So the important thing is that we're still talking about the same Balaam, Balaam, son of Beor, who loved to earn money by doing wrong. So the enemy knows that that's where he's tempted. The enemy's already tempted them there and, and figured out that's his weak spot. I can get him there. And remember, when the king first came to him, he just asked for him to come and curse them. And then, when Balaam went the first time, he got him in at least to take one footstep closer to sin by saying, well, I've come with these even mightier officials and I will bless you richly. I will give you lots of money. Now, the enemy has tempted Balaam where he knows he's the weakest. And Balaam has taken that one foot, that one step towards sin. And that's all it takes. It's one step away from God, and it's a slippery slope before you find yourself at the bottom of the hill. And that's where we're going to find Balaam. So, in Jude, chapter 1, verse 11, it's up on the screen, we'll only be there for a minute, also talks about this. What sorrow awaits them, for they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother, like Balaam, they deceive people for money. And like Korah, they perish for their rebellion. So Balaam here is noted as deceiving people for money. So he loves money. He loves doing wrong when it comes to getting paid. He, he has no qualms about that. He has no morals as long as money's involved. He'll do whatever it takes. He deceives people for money. And then Jesus is going to sum it up for us. So this is in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. So these are Jesus' words. And he's going to explain to us what happened. What happened between Numbers, the end of chapter 24, where Balaam and Balak part ways, it says, and, and Balaam has blessed the nation of Israel. So the end of chapter 24 and the beginning of chapter 25, where Israel finds itself in this great sin and has separated itself from God. So Revelation 2, 14. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. So Jesus explains even further to us that Balaam taught Balak, well, 
this is how you can trip up God's people. You can get them into sexual sin, and then you can get them to come worship your idols. And if you do that, you'll arouse God's anger against you. So God has his commands. God's commands are good, we learned. That God is holy. His commands are holy. They're good. They're righteous. They're for our benefit. We learned that with Adam and Eve, that it was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I would say to you that, that Adam and Eve at that point know some good. When God created the earth, he said it was good. They got to see the garden and it was good. But what he protected them from was the knowledge of evil. And that's what they wanted. They wanted, well, that looks tempting. And all sin looks tempting to us for a season. And all sin is pleasurable, the Bible says, for a season. But it doesn't last. It's not a lasting love. It's not a lasting fruit. It's not a lasting satisfaction. The only thing that's lasting is Jesus Christ. And that's it. But here, we see exactly how it worked. What happened between the end of chapter 24 and the beginning of chapter 25 in Numbers? Well, Balaam showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. Here, this is how you can get to God's people. You can tempt them. So Balaam has now become the enemy, has now used God's word, his knowledge of his word, and his knowledge of where he knows the Israelites will be the weakest, that the Israelite men will be the weakest with these Moabite women. And once... They've entered into the sexual sin with the Moabite women. It won't be much longer before the Moabite women can talk them in to coming in and worshiping their gods and their idols. And that's what the enemy does. The enemy separates us from God. He knows where we're weakest. The enemy knows what God's commands are. And that's how he knows where to work. The enemy can work in many different areas in our lives. When we're told to love our neighbor and we have this, this, this hatred, this separation for whatever it is with anyone out there, the enemy knows that, and the enemy can use that to work against us. When God created Adam and Eve, and he brought them together, the first marriage, and that nothing should separate them, we read at the beginning of chapter 7 that the only way the marriage is separated is by death, that nothing should separate us. Well, where does the enemy come to work? The enemy comes to work against our marriages all of the time, and that's why you see the divorce rate so high. The enemy knows what the law is and knows where to attack us. And he attacks anything that God has set up. Oftentimes we've said that you know, God kind of turns things upside down and then say, no, Al, maybe he's just turning them right side up. And that's exactly what he's doing. God's turning things right side up. God had a plan and a purpose and it was good and it was perfect. And the enemy comes in and twists and perverts God's word and perverts God's law and perverts God's commands to say something that it's not. So what is God doing? He is really just turning it back right side up. So sin has no power over us. Death has no power over us. We are God's children forever in, in his presence, in his kingdom. Nothing can separate us from God's love. God chose to love us. We choose to love God. We can choose to love others. And we can choose to love ourselves. And love is a choice. And that that sin that separates us from God, that evil that is in the world has no power over us, only the power that we give it. And we can choose every day when we're tempted, Jesus, I believe that you are more powerful than this temptation. You are more powerful than this sin. Please help me. Please remove this from my life. Give me the strength to endure. 
Give me the strength to get past this. And when we pray over and over and over again, what we're doing is we're building our faith. We're saying, God, I believe you. I believe your word. I believe you are who you say you are. And when our faith is strengthened, that temptation, that sin has less and less power over us. It actually has no power over us, but it's less and less tempting to us, I should say. So that's it. Are there any questions? Lots of reading, lots of story, but. So it doesn't tell us in numbers, unless there's more here that we didn't, that Balaam taught them how to, how to send the harlotry. Nope. It doesn't tell us that until Revelation. Yep. And it kind of builds up to that where Second Peter, where Peter writes about it, and Jude writes about it. You kind of lead up to that. Um, it actually does. I think if we go to Numbers 31, it might tell us there too. Do you think that's because of the translation of the English? No, I don't think we're missing anything. I think it's how God intended it to be. So we kind of went over this a few weeks ago. We went over parables. And where we got into this was that we talked about the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And we talked that that was not a parable, that that was an actual story because Lazarus uses a person's name. And in parables, he doesn't use people's names. But we did talk about how Jesus often taught in parables. And the, the point of, the, of teaching the stories is the story, the message doesn't change, but it meets people in different aspects of their lives. You know, they're in different places. And Jesus said that the reason he taught in parables is that those with understanding, those that would press more into him and press more into the story and what is he saying, what is he meaning, they would give them more understanding. And those that weren't interested, he would take away what little understanding he said. So I think that God places this all throughout his, his words, that we'll go all throughout his word. You know, that we'll seek after, okay, well, where else does it talk about this God? Where can I find this? Or, and I love that. I like, I absolutely love connecting all the dots throughout his word. You know, this is the, this is the whole story, but you've got to go all throughout his word to get the whole story. And he gives you little bits and pieces if you're truly seeking after him, if you want to know what he says. But there's a lot of people in the world that just want to, well, I think this is what God says. Or, and I was one of those when, when I grew up in the Catholic Church. Before I became a Christian, I thought to myself, I know what, I know what the Bible says. I, I grew up in the Catholic Church. I went to Catholic school. Well, I had no idea what it said, you know. So, but I think, in, I think in Numbers 31, it also talks about that. Um, so, let me, so Numbers 31, I'll start just here in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, On behalf of the people of Israel, take revenge on the Midianites for leading them into idolatry. After that, you will die and join your ancestors. So Moses said to the people, Choose men from the army to fight the Lord's war of revenge against Midian. From each tribe of Israel, send 1,000 men into battle. So they chose 1,000 men from each tribe of Israel, a total of 12,000 men armed for battle. Then Moses sent them out, a thousand men from each tribe. And Phinehas, son of Eliphazar, the priest, led them into battle. So the man that used the spear to, to end God's plague, he's the one that leads them into battle. Carried along many holy objects, the trumpets sounded the charge. They attacked the Midianites and killed all the men, 
all five of the Midianite kings, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, Reba, died in the battle. They also king ba killed Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. The Midianite. Maybe it doesn't specifically go into it. Oh, so then it talks about, so then I'll continue on. The Israelites, the Israelite army captured the Midianite women and children, seized their cattle and flocks and all their wealth and plunder. They burned all the towns and villages where the Midianites had lived. After they had gathered the plunder and captives of people and animals, they brought them to Moses and Eleazar the priest and to the community of Israel, which was camped on the plains of Moab and the Jordan River across from Jericho. Moab, Eliezer the priest, and all the leaders of the community went and met them outside. But Moses was furious when he saw the general captives who had returned from battle. Why have you let these women live? He demanded. These are the very ones who followed Balaam's advice and caused the people of Israel to rebel against the Lord on Mount Peor. So, so he does say it there that, that these women followed Balaam's advice. Now, if Balaam went to them directly, or if Balaam went to Balak, and then Balak went to these women, somehow, Balaam was definitely involved. So, but, yeah. But I do love how you get to read, get little bits and pieces all throughout the Bible to make this whole story. And there's many other examples of this. This is just one of them. But, but God, God knew his law. God knew what he had planned. It was to bless Israel. This was good. And the enemy knew how to to twist God's, what is meant for good, twist it into evil. Just like how Paul starts in chapter 7. And that's why, and the enemy's still doing it today. He knows how to get us. He knows where to get us. Not that he has power over us, only the power that we give him. You know, so when we're tempted to sin, when we're angry, tempted to get angry, or tempted to do whatever it is that we're tempted to do, we're all tempted in different ways. And the enemy knows that and works that against us, but... It has no power over us. When we turn to Jesus and trust in him and build that faith over and over and over again, God help me, help me through this. Don't let this have power over me. Don't let me fall into this sin anymore. Please heal me. He does. So that's pretty amazing. Do you have any questions? No? What about you? I think that when you said um, that you God never changes his mind, I think when he says don't follow them like to Balaam, um, I think that when he asked him again, he said follow them only in the morning, and then he did it again, and then the angel stopped him, and then he said, Go, but do what I say. Like, say what I say. Yep. He changed his mind. You think God changed his mind there? Well, that's a good point. So I think what happened is that God meant for all this to happen for us right here, right now, for us to read about this, right? And that God knows the beginning from the end. So he already knows everything that's going to happen in the future. He knows who's going to come to know him, who's going to follow him, who's going to deny him, who's going to walk away from him. He knows all of that before he even created the earth. So I don't think he changed his mind. I think that this was his plan of how this would play out from the beginning. 
And did he make Balaam the way he is? No, but he knew who Balaam's heart was and that Balaam's heart would be tempted. And that God already made it clear to Balaam, don't go. And Balaam chose to go anyways, right? And then he said, that's fine. You can go. I'll give you your heart's desire. Because God always gives us our desires, right? Even when it's not good for us. Yeah. Yep. And so he, he knows Balaam's desire. He says, okay, you can go. You can have your desire, but you're gonna, there's going to be some limitations. You can only speak what I tell you to speak. And he does. But then after he's done with that, then Balaam goes and, oh, but I can tell you this, Balak. And now I'll get paid and I'll be wealthy. And he, he stayed with the Midianites because we read that he was killed there with the kings. So he didn't go return to his land. He must have got paid and was very wealthy and popular now. And, and then he got what he wanted, right? So he, God gave him the desires of his heart. God didn't, I don't think God changed his mind. Because there's other places where, um, where Moses is pleading for the people. God says, I'm going to wipe these people out. I'm done with them. And Moses is pleading for them. And God says, okay, Moses, I'll relent. I won't, I won't wipe them out. And it seems like, well, maybe God changed his mind there. But I don't think God did. I think God always knew what he was going to do. And that what he was doing was working, through, working in Moses' heart. Moses, you need a heart for the people. So I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm telling you, I'm going to wipe these people out. But you're going to come and you're going to plead for them. You're gonna, I'm going to work on your heart for them. And so he does. Yeah. Like before the then why didn't he like stop Satan? That is that, my question yeah, too. That's it. So that is a great question. That but that goes back to the same thing as the tree. Why is the tree in the garden? Because without that choice, without that free will, there is no love. Do you understand that? Which is very hard. Like, well, can we do away with all these evil things? But that was God's plan from the beginning. There was no evil. And the knowledge of evil was, was not given to man, right? That, wasn't, that was what God had planned. That's how he was going to plan on this, how the life's going to be. You won't ever know evil. But man thought it would looked good and got deceived by the enemy, by Satan. I got in trouble when I was young. I asked uh, people in the Catholic churches, uh, kind of, we went twice a year. Yeah. And I asked them, well, why don't we just stop eating apples? <laughs> Looked at me like I was, you know, you need to go to another. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, if that's the cause of the sin, why don't we not eat apples? Yeah. Well, that's how we got taught. Like tradition, yeah. I was like, well, then you read it, it's like it's the fruit, it's fruit. It's fruit. Yeah. Yeah, but that's tradition. That's man's tradition where man's added to God's word, you know. God's word says this, but man adds to it. Oh yeah. Oh we did too. Until I started reading the Bible. I thought Well everybody said it was an apple. But that's what Hollywood kind of shows it as. The other one that was kind of surprising to us was was angels. You know. You don't ever read about a female angel. So to our knowledge, there are no such thing as female angels. All angels are all angels are male. And they all must be pretty terrifying because every time someone sees one, they're terrified. So they're not these hallmark, you know, cutesy angels. They, the, you know. Well, that's what they were saying about um, is the, one of the Arabs during the course, 
company of Israelis who were in a defensive position, and 10 times their number came over the hill to get them, and they stopped. Yep. And, they, and the commander of this uh, Arab army walked up to the Egyptian lines, and he wanted to surrender his army to them. And the Israelis were standing there like, why? And he said, because of him. <laughs> and the Israelis turned around, they don't see. Was that in 1965? Yeah. yeah. And they said, who's the 30-foot man with the sword? <laughs> yeah. we, we're terrified in his presence. And when he looks at us, we tremble in fear. And he's watching the whole line of, and the whole army backed away and left. They wouldn't even fight him. Yeah. And this came out in a book a long time after the war. This guy converted to Christianity because an angel showed up. He could have wiped these Israelis out, but they were afraid of that 30-foot glowing white man. Yeah. And, and he's standing there with wings and a sword, he said. And they, every time they looked at him, they were overcome with great fear. And, but not like he hates them in fear, like, oh, he's just going to, you know, it just, they were humbled in fear because this being is standing there. They wouldn't even touch the soldiers. They could have wiped them out, but it was that they saw this angel and they backed away. And a lot of that army converted to Christianity because they, who has angels on their side? Well, Islam does. And they're for two years. Makes me think of Elijah, his assistant, who's all terrified. The army's coming after him, and Elijah's not. He doesn't understand why. He says, well, look at the hill. Look at the hillside, you know. The the army is there. Yep. So, oh, yeah. Um, Do you have one more question? Over your hands up. Okay. Why can't sin be less tempting? Yes. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I would have to say that, number one, God doesn't do the tempting. The enemy does. And that the enemy's been doing this for a long time and, and knows exactly how to, to get to people, right? And knows what they'll want. Um, and once you start down that slippery slope of sin, you know, it's one step away from God, but it's a slippery, you know, quickly slide to the bottom you find yourself very far from God in a very short amount of time because there's a saying that sin takes you farther than you want to go keeps you longer than you want to stay and costs you more than you're willing to pay and that's very much true once you take that little step it's a quick slide to the bottom usually and you find yourself very very far apart from God and while it looks tempting like for Eve she said it, it looked she was convinced that it looked like it was good and all sin does. It looks like it's good, but it's, it's a facade. It's not real. It's like a covering over a picture. And you lift the covering, and really the picture's ugly. But you have this covering that makes it look good. Does that make sense? So it's not really good. We just perceive it as being really good. Oh, I really need this. And, and you don't. You know, like I can think of people that struggle with alcohol, oh, I really need this drink, but everyone around them can see how bad it is for them. You know what I mean? You've seen that? So it's not really good. It just, people perceive it as being good. It's like someone won my lottery money. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't need it. In Illinois. <laughs> God tells me I don't need it. I need Jesus. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's, exactly, that's, that's, that's exactly right. That's my life. My freedom, my everything. 
everything is in the right relief from Christ because he has all the power, all the wealth, all the, everything. And it's in him we find freedom and truth. It's in the Colorado lottery that takes my money. That's not true. <laughs> That's true. Do we have any prayer requests? No? You do have one? Pray for Sparky. Oh, that's a good one. Sparky is one of her friend's horses that got hurt. Been praying for your knees. Yep. Keep praying. Keep praying. All right. Praying. We'll keep it on the list. Bad memories 
so they're not so painful and keep coming up and yeah, coming up angry. He had some other stuff, but and they gave me, uh, got me some pain. Just in case, it just takes the top off. So you can, you know. I think that's amazing. I, I've never heard of it until Lauren had mentioned it last time. And Cherry said, oh yeah, I've heard of that. And I was like, so pretty, pretty crazy what um, therapy can do like that. You know what I mean? I was yeah. like, I, I never heard of it. It, the counselor was like saying, you take the filing cabinet, here's reorganize all yeah. of the, the traumatic events and stuff. Because um, my brother and sister and I grew up kind of preppy, and we, we had some bad stuff. And, he's, and, and that, don't fix that. Other things get affected by it, that trigger. Yeah. And then it becomes a really big issue, a long-term thing. And they're saying, if you start with the first part, you kind of reorganize it so it's, it, it, left brain, right brain thing, where you're That's crazy, because that's how Lauren had to explain it to me when we were chatting about it. I was like, well, that's a concept. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, we'll be praying for sure. Same with her, because she's going to, she's she has already started it. Yeah. So I was like, wow. It's a pretty amazing. Will you say what EMDR is? Because now I can't remember E. And am I saying that's that right? Electro I wrote it down. Disassociation. It's, yeah. it's, it's a mental stimulation of your left and right side. To reconnect them. And when you're thinking about a traumatic event, or when you have a traumatic event, and, and it, it, it like, it, you only one side of your brain got it, the other side didn't. Yeah. And usually it's your dominant side. So my right hand and my left brain's full of crap. Right. That my right brain didn't catch up with. And, and what they want you to do is you go through some, you don't have to go through the whole trauma, but you, you relate parts of that trauma and they, they stimulate your other side while you're doing stuff and they have visual and physical. And it try, and it, what it does is when you're going through it, both sides of your brain are experiencing it so you can balance it better. And it is a Christian counselor. Yeah, they are Christians doing this, they're cornerstone. Yeah. It's kind of interesting just talking about that, and then we have a friend that we didn't, you know, your brain, if you get an injury too. You're talking about Shelly? We saw them yesterday, traumatic brain injury and things like that. It just, you, you don't think of how that brain works until you're like, but it makes sense. It's like, okay, things aren't connecting, and when things don't connect, that's not, it's not really good. So. She went through a brain injury though. She had a brain injury. And. And they tried all these different things. Oh, take this pill, take this, and no, it's never going to fix the connections. And they found a place in Parker that does uh, brain mapping, and the the therapy that she goes through, she watches a movie. Movies provoke emotions, and it, when it gets to that where it provokes emotion, if but the brain makes the wrong connection, then it kind of brings it back down and starts over until it provokes the right emotion. And the brain makes that connection correctly. And, and it's pretty amazing. This, this is. It a, sounds a lot similar. That's what I was saying. It was sounding very again, similar. It's making sure you're staying connected. Yep. And, 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 and both sides of your brain are, are going through the event. Yep. So you can have a better, or rational, like trauma. Okay, trauma. Okay. And, but when they're together. Not these really high highs and really low lows. More rationally, you're, then you can, it, it's not so bad on you. Yeah. I have nightmares and stuff. I just wake her up and she'll. And, but I don't tell her the dreams. That's, that's not gross. I don't know what I want and stuff. So we could use your 
glad you said something because that's yep. it's just I think it's yep. And Lauren asked the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's pray. Okay. Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this time together to learn more about you, about how great you are, about how much you love us, about how you have a plan, a purpose for our lives, that you created us just the way you did for a reason, that at any point we can reach out to you and trust that you are in control, that you will guide us through as your sons and daughters. You don't make that promise for everyone, but you make that for your children. And we're thankful to be part of that. Lord, I ask you would watch over Matt, that you'd bring healing to his knees, that you would bring healing, comfort, and guidance for Tim, that you would um, just bring comfort to Austin and Joey and Chris, um, that you would bring patience and wisdom and strength um, for Cherry and for all of her family, for Leanne and Julie and Shannon and Aaron and David and Greg and Randy. Um, you bring peace for David you would bring healing for Christina's heart. You would guide the doctors in the treatment plan that they have for her. You would bring healing to Tyler's shoulder. Um, and that you would bring healing to Rodney's back. That you would bring healing to Leslie's eyes. That you would guide the doctors in the treatments that they choose for that. That you would um, just restore her sight. Lord, I ask that you would watch over Sparky. That you would keep him safe. I pray that you would watch over Bonnie, that you would guide the doctors in her treatment, and that you would take away the cancer that's in her. That you would watch over Matt, that you would watch over Lauren, that you would guide the counseling, that you would bring comfort and peace that only you can. That you would help them to get through the first two weeks, that you would just place your hand upon their lives. Lord, I ask that you would Give us each the right words to speak. That you would help us to be a light and a witness to you. That you would help us to grow in friendship and fellowship. That we would encourage each other in, in good deeds and encourage each other in the works that you do in our lives. I ask that you would watch over the Elbert County Sheriff's Department, the Elizabeth Police Department, um, the surrounding departments. That you would protect them. That you would protect them physically, but that you would protect them spiritually that the things that they see, that you would protect their families, that they are on the front lines of that spiritual battle. Lord, I ask you to watch over and guide us to a church that we get to come alongside in somewhere in the South Stand or in the Uganda area. That you would be preparing that for us now. It's in Jesus' name I pray all these things. Amen. 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 You want to sing one more song? Yeah.